Welcome, everybody. I'm thrilled you're with us today. Uh, I, I, I'm excited for what, uh, to, to see what Jesus has to say for us today. And I really do mean that. Jesus is literally, just, Jesus is speaking to us today. We're reading out of the scriptures. Um, we are talking in our new series about the, the seven woes. The woes are these, these uh, powerful, strong warnings that Jesus makes about the distorted religion of his day. Jesus still has something to say to us, right? And so that's what we want to keep in mind. And I always have to remind myself of this. So I just assume there's some, someone out there who might be like me. It's very often when you read these stories, you read the words of Jesus, it's really easy to put yourself like on the side of Jesus and not make yourself one of the ones Jesus is sort of talking to. You know what I mean? Like he's talking to Pharisees and he's really having it out with them, right? So it's easy to go, whoo, I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee. Whoo, let him have it, Jesus. And so we kind of want to be like up here behind the Jesus' shoulder going, yeah, take it. You know, but really we're the ones in front of Jesus on our knees saying, Lord, God, have mercy on me. You see me better than I see myself. And so we want to make sure that's the attitude that we have when we read these words of Jesus. They're here for a reason. They're here not to just make us feel better about ourselves. They're here so we can grow. We want to grow. And so a question we're always asking is, what did this mean for the people who first heard this, who were right there in that moment, hearing that in context? And then we, as we always ask, what does this mean for us? So we're in today, we're in Matthew 23. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll start in verse 1. It says, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. That means they sit in authority on religious matters. That was a phrase, it was a euphemism back then, meant that they were like in the tradition of Moses. Moses was traditionally looked on as the one who was the father of the Torah. You know, he brought the law of God. He came down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And so to that, you know, years and years, centuries later, the Pharisees consider themselves as sort of, you know, they had been handed that duty to continue to deliver the law and the Torah and the truth of what God wants to communicate. Kind of like, you know, Catholics view the, the Pope. You know, he's the one who came down from Peter and is still leading the church. So anyway, sort of that idea. The Pharisees saw themselves as that. So they sit in the seat of Moses, the seat of authority. Therefore, he says, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. Interesting. He says, do what they do, but don't do what they say. Here's what they, or no, no, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Here's what they do, do. Verse four, <laughs> they, they, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. He goes on to give a couple of examples of how uh, these Pharisees, they like to wear extra long tassels on their garment. Because you're supposed to wear tassels, so they would wear extra long ones. And they like to be seen in public praying. You know, uh, we can skip down to verse 13. He says, but woe to you. Here we come with the woe. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and me. Uh, Jesus, he's so sweet, right? We, we get this picture. We're all told Jesus is just sweet. He's just lovable. He's always got a lamb tucked under one arm and his hair is just blowing in the wind. This is seriously ticked off Jesus, right? You hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. For you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Wow. Woe to you. 
Not only are you missing out on the kingdom of heaven, not only are you, you're not, you're not understanding it, you're not getting into, you're not in the kingdom, you're not part of the, the plan here. Not only that, but you're keeping others from entering by your actions and your words and your life. And remember the, the reason for all this, he goes back to verse four. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Jesus calls out these religious people who exalt law over love, right? Principle over people. It's the opposite of Jesus who says that his burden is light, right? He promises to give us rest. But these Pharisees are not only not helpful, they are doing more harm than good. They're actually keeping people from entering. And it makes Jesus furious. So, Let's, look at some, let's get some background here. Why Jesus is so f- upset here. Let's turn back just a, a page or two in your Bible to Matthew 13. Now, remember everything about Jesus comes from love, right? We talked about this, I, I think, in our very last series. It's all emanates from love. Jesus never has to decide, like, right, do I set aside my love so I can do some judgment, or do I set aside my judgment so I can do some loving? That's not, that's not Jesus, right? Every emotion he feels, every impulse he has, whether he is holding children or flipping the tables, it is coming from love. And so he has this perfect divine love, and it's just a beautiful love. It never ends. It never quits. But that doesn't mean he just smiles and excuses injustice when he sees it, right? Here we see the love of Jesus that burns so brightly, it seriously gets him cranked up in this scene right here. This is the God. Remember, this is the God who hears the cry. This is the heart, the heart of God. Never forget, he loves us, he loves us all, but it is always bent towards the oppressed, those who are suffering injustice. He hears the cry, right? And so this is the side of Jesus that we're going to see over the next several weeks of this series. I want to take just a little side note here because this is just something, this is just for fun. Um, There's a a particular uh, category or genre of religious art um, called the icon, it's called iconography. And this is ancient. This like goes back like a thousand, fifteen hundred years or something like that. This kind of religious iconography. In the old, old, old ancient days of the early days of the Christian church, they would paint these pictures and put these pictures. A lot of times you found these in churches back then. Um, pictures of Jesus. And yeah, there were uh, different religious figures, but very often these icons, they called them icons, uh, uh, they would be of Jesus. And, and even then they like, they would paint them with like lots of symbolism, the weird, like the direction he's looking or like where his hand is and this kind of stuff. It all meant different things like that. Um, but uh, some of them are beautiful. And I really, I really love these things. You know, you've seen pictures of Jesus. Like some of them are like the happy Jesus. Have you seen the one, uh, the happy Jesus? I love that picture. It's a beautiful picture. It's kind of like a modern day icon we have of him. But these, uh, these were very popular in the Byzantine period of the church. Um, the one on the left there, it's, it's made out of wood and it's uh, overlaid with gold. And uh, so that would have been uh, sitting in a church one time. The one on the right, if you get really close to it, it's beautiful. It's, it's inlaid with tiny little tiles. It's made with tiles. Um, it's called the Merciful Christ. It's uh, from the 12th century. So this is old, ancient stuff here. The one in the middle, though, is probably my favorite one. And uh, I just wanted to talk about it for just a second. It's called the, the Christos Pentacrator 
of St. Who is it? St. Catherine's Monastery. It's in the Sinai. And this monastery is still there today. It dates from the 6th century, 1,500 years ago. And as far as I know, it's still there in this monastery. And so it's, it's a very interesting uh, painting. Um, and if you, if you notice, when you look at it, there's something a, a little off that most people find about it. Do you notice something about his face? What's interesting is that's intentional. It's all intentional. And uh, the historians tell us that what this is doing, this, this particular painting of Jesus represented the uh, dual nature of Christ. You know, he is, we believe he is all, he was 100% human and 100% God, right? But Scott, that's 200%. I know, it's, it's a mystery, right? That's just what we believe. Uh, right? It's this idea of this dual nature of Christ. The, the fancy word is the hypostatic union uh, of, of Christ. This dual nature, and it illustrates his traits of both man and God. So you might notice there's something a little off about his face, and you really can notice it if you uh, split his face down the middle and then try to duplicate it, like I've done for you in Photoshop, because <laughs> I'm here for you. Here we go. So you see the left side of his face, what it would look like if they matched the right side. If What would they look like, right? It's kind of, it's, it's almost eerie, but it's really different. The two sides don't quite match up in the pretty way that you normally see in art. And um, so what they say is that Christ, his more severe features on the right side of the painting represent the qualities of, uh, some historians say it's the, his human nature. Uh, some historians say this is, represents Christ the judge. Um, while the more serene expression over here on the left side uh, represents his divinity, or some uh, historians say this is Christ the Savior. Um, that's not important. We're not going to be tested on this. The point is why I love this picture so much, and I just, I just, it just personally, it's cool to me. When I read the woes, when I read the woes, immediately it makes me think of this painting, Christ Pentacrador here, this painting, because here is our Christ, here's our, our loving Lord Jesus, he's full of love, and I can just picture him, though, like when he encounters the Pharisees, his like eye twitches a little bit. He's like, you guys, right? This is, just, I, I just love this. Uh, this is Jesus. You hypocrite leaders, woe to you. You load people down with your impossibly heavy, unbearable religious burdens. The people, he says, the people around you are, are, are they're, they're breaking under the weight of these burdens. They're, they're, it's hopeless for them to bear these burdens, and you don't do a thing to help. You don't lead them toward a picture of, of God's love and his grace and his victory and his mercy. And instead of lifting a finger to help, you just point a finger in judgment. And this is a very convicting thing for me when I read this. I see this picture of Jesus asking me, Scott, are you lifting a finger? Did you lift a finger today or did you just point more fingers? Did you lift fingers or point fingers today? And this is, speaks to me so much. So this morning I want to explore why this gets Jesus so upset. Why is he so mad about this? Uh, notice Matthew 13, if you've turned there. This is going to give us some insight into what Jesus is doing throughout his ministry. He preaches the kingdom of God, that the kingdom has come. And he announces this new reality of the kingdom of God. In verse 44, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. 
We've talked a lot about this, but the kingdom of heaven, when we see this phrase, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Mark, Luke, John call it the kingdom of God. Um, this is a way of talking about the reality of God breaking into our world. The reality of God breaking into our realm. Jesus, it's, it's God's will and his way operating in our life. We're walking in the kingdom when we allow his will and his way to have rule and reign in our life. So Jesus is essentially, he's saying there's this new thing that God is up to. And this is what it looks like. This isn't when he talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. You know, it says the word heaven. It's not really about what happens after we die. It's not about life after death. It is about the thing that makes death obsolete, right? The kingdom of heaven is the secret invasion into this reality that you and I live in, that God has already begun. And so for Jesus, the new reality is like a treasure. It's not a burden. To Jesus, this is a treasure. It's something you want more than anything. It's like someone discovering treasure in a field, and he says, and in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. So the kingdom of heaven brings what? Joy. This is Jesus' view of the kingdom of heaven. It's something that brings joy. And so Jesus is announcing this joyful news. The kingdom is here and now. It's in our midst. It's walking among you. And he says, people, when they get this, they will do anything to be a part of it. He goes on in verse 45. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. That's kind of, that's a picture of just you and me, everyday life. We're in search of whatever it is, the next thing, the thing that's going to make us happy. And, and he says, on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all he had and he bought it. So Jesus' view of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, is that this is a, a new reality and whether you stumbled across it, whether it found you or you found it or someone told you about it, however you found it, whatever, you can think of nothing better and you'll arrange your entire life to be a part of it. So when the religious leaders come along and get it completely backward and portray the life of God as something heavy and burdensome, it makes Jesus furious. Let's look at John chapter 6. Let's look at John chapter 6. Uh, John 6. We want to make an important distinction here. Jesus says the Pharisees have made this gospel into something heavy. But what does that, what does that mean to us? In John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to a really large crowd. He just got through feeding the 5,000. And the miracle part of that, everybody was loving. They loved that. Like, yay, Jesus just fed us with this miracle, the loaves and the fishes. But then Jesus starts to talk to them uh, about the cost of discipleship and how they're actually going to uh, have to put their faith in him. And it's really interesting. If you go back and read the chapter, uh, maybe we'll do it in Home Life this week. If you read the chapter of John 6, he compares the people in front of him in his day to what was ancient history for them, which was the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And when they were rescued from Egypt, so that was their ancestors, he rescues them. But they grumbled in the wilderness. You know the story? They grumbled because they, they had to eat manna. They had to eat this miracle bread. And he says that the new living bread, he kind of compares it to their situation. He says the new living bread that he's offering people is himself. He compares himself to the manna. And he even says that they'll have to eat his flesh and drink his blood, with, which some people took like super literally and got really freaked out. And, and a lot of people in this scene just got up and left. 
This is like not a scene you would include in the story if you were just making this up, because this isn't a super victorious scene like of how to start a church, right? It's, it's, but it happened, and a lot of people gave up and left because they couldn't grasp the, the depth and the beauty of what he was doing. So in verse 60, it says, when many of his own disciples heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? Who can accept the, this teaching of the cost of this? So Jesus, now let's kind of hold these in two hands here. Jesus is upset with religious leaders for making the message heavy, right? But the truth is, sometimes faith is hard. The reality of the kingdom is sometimes, let's admit it, difficult to accept and to not just accept mentally. I mean, that's one thing. Okay, yeah, I believe it. But to actually walk it out, to walk in the kingdom, the ways of the kingdom. It's hard because it's fundamentally at odds with the ways of the world. It's completely at odds with the way your mama and daddy raised you, right? As good a job as they did, it's not kingdom, right? It's at odds with the way schools teach you and the way governments work and the way societies work. The kingdom is different. It is really supernatural. It's very countercultural. It truly is, truly countercultural. It requires a surrendering of yourself. Some of the scriptures even use the language of crucifying yourself, right? Crucifying the flesh. It takes a leap of faith, as the Christian philosopher Kierkegaard put it, the leap of faith. Uh, And the less like a child you are, the less trusting you are, the more cynical you have become because of life, the harder it is to do, right? There's a reason he keeps telling us we got to come to him like a child. Because the, 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 the less trusting, the more cynical, the harder it is to do. In verse 66, it says, because of this, many of his disciples, not just the crowd, but the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. His own disciples. So the gospel isn't heavy, but sometimes it can seem hard in our own minds to figure it out. How am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? Let's look at an example. In Luke chapter 10, uh, this is a story. Jesus is uh, at the home of a good friend of his, Martha. I love Martha. Martha is a great figure. She pops up like three different times in the stories of Jesus. Uh, apparently is a, a friend of Jesus, like someone he actually developed a friendship with. Uh, a lot of historians believe she must be a person of means. She might be a businesswoman. She has a home. She's able to entertain Jesus and all his entourage when they arrive, you know, and there's a lot of them and she's able to feed them. And so she's a person of, of some means here. Let's see, uh, where are we? Luke chapter 10, verse 38 says, as they, that's Jesus and his disciples, went on their way, they entered a certain village where a, a woman named Martha, their good friend Martha, welcomed her, welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying, but Martha was distracted by her many tasks. Now, some of you know where I'm going. Some of you have heard this story, but just kind of listen to this again uh, fresh because there's an interesting truth here that we can, we can really get from this. Martha is distracted by her many tasks and the coordinated placemats and the Papacito's catering is getting there at any moment now and she's got to get everything ready, right? People are here. This is Jesus. This is the son of God, right? You're not just going to feed him pizza. You're going to, this is going to be good stuff. And so she came to Jesus and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister, I always think little sister, I just for some reason this feels like a big sister, little sister thing to me, has left me to do all the work by myself. Tell her to help me. 
But the Lord answered her, Martha, 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 Martha. You are worried and distracted by many things. There is need for only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. Basically, Jesus is saying, Martha, your life right now, this moment of yours is out of control. Right? You're obsessing, you're stressed, and you're worried about things that ultimately are not important. You've lost a sense of perspective here. Notice what Jesus is wanting to do. He literally wants to lighten Martha's load. But this is a hard message for her to accept. Right? Sometimes the message of Jesus confronts us. Sometimes it challenges us. Sometimes the message of Jesus, when he speaks to you and you feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit, it stings a little, right? To have the gunk of life peeled off of you isn't always just a super fun thing to go through. So, but it's so we can be free. But the message of Christ is never meant to be heavy. It's never meant to be heavy. It is meant to take the load off. How many of you have experienced this where the Spirit of God speaks to you in some way? Maybe just in your own prayer time or maybe through another person or something. But he speaks to you in a way and essentially the point was, hey, your life is, is out of control. Everything is out of whack. And you felt, and in that moment you feel this sort of like, ow, that's conf- confrontive. It's like you know God is offering you something that is a lighter load than what you're carrying, but to accept it is hard to accept. For instance, how many of you ever heard the command in the New Testament of Jesus not to worry? <laughs> How's that working for you? He commands you not to worry, right? He is literally wanting to lighten our load. He doesn't want you to worry. How many of you thought, that doesn't help? That feels like one more thing I got to do now. Is stop worrying, right? He's trying to lighten our load, but the idea of living in peace And without worrying about every little thing happening around you, or even the big things that are happening around you, that is hard. And very often it's because it involves a loss of the need for control, right? He's asking us to give over the need for control, or at least that illusion of control, right? Let's look at Luke chapter 5. Here's a a good one. Jesus comes across his first disciples, and uh, they've been fishing all night. He hasn't, he is the first time they've met. Um, and they're fishing all night, not for fun. This isn't like a fun fishing excursion. They're doing this for survival. They're not being paid by the hour. They're being paid by the fish they bring in, right? They, they have to sell. They have to eat. Uh, so this is, this is grueling. They've been out all night. They haven't caught anything, and Jesus calls them out, and he yells at them to throw their nets on the other side of the boat, which if you're a fisherman, that's kind of dumb, right? There's not really much difference between this side of the boat and that side of the boat. Um, He tells him to go to the other side of the boat. And Peter, who's the fisherman, he is like, okay, this goes against all my training as a fisherman. But for some reason, he listens. He doesn't just like, like, he don't know what he's talking about. For some reason, he says, he does it. And it says, when they had done this, they caught so many fish, their nets began to break. Now, remember, Simon Peter he has a great deal of knowledge and experience when it comes to fishing. Um, and Jesus, I think it's so beautiful how he speaks to Peter in his area of expertise. You know, he doesn't come to Jesus with lots of theological concepts trying to, you know, convince him on the philosophy of the kingdom of God or on, you know, the atonement theory. He comes to him about fishing. 
and you speak to him in Peter's realm of expertise so that Peter will understand Jesus's realm of authority. So they signaled their partners, yeah, they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. Everybody come. And they came and they filled both boats. They began to sink. The, so many fish, they flopped into the boat. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So Peter here, he comes face to face with the kingdom of God embodied in this human being, embodied in this person, the person of Jesus, and it exposes him for all the things he really is and all that he knows about himself, all his inadequacy, his sinfulness, his brokenness. Peter recognizes him at the very least as a very great rabbi, some kind of rabbi. I'm not worthy to be around this guy. I'm just a fisherman. His smallness, he's utterly humbled. And he's like, you don't understand, sir. I don't even deserve to be in the same boat as you. I was reading where fishermen of that day, the, the work was so grueling. They would be out there on that Sea of Galilee out in the middle where nobody can see them anyway. You know, they'd just work together, a bunch of guys. And so the work was so hot and grueling. A lot of times they would just strip down. They probably weren't wearing anything. Um, they would, and as they're toiling and trying to bring up this hull. So Simon literally has a moment like Adam where he, he looks down and realizes he is totally exposed in the presence of the living God and he's confronted and he, he encounters the kingdom of heaven and his reaction isn't like, yay! His reaction is it stings. This stings. The, the message of Jesus is not meant to be burdensome, but it can be confronting. It can be challenging. Martha, you're in over your head, right? Your life is all out of whack. It can be convicting. Simon Peter, we both know you're a sinner. We both know you're unable to save yourself, even with all your experience and your, your know-how. So Jesus' message can be hard. It can be hard. But Jesus is furious with the religious people who make the message heavy. So we're starting to see kind of a distinction there. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. So central to, to God's message to humanity is that uh, the gospel takes the loads off. This is good news. The good, it's good news. And religion at its best, we talked about this last week. We had a good talk about this in our, in our home life group too this week. Uh, religion at its best, there is a good religion talked about in, in the uh, New Testament. There's a proper place for religion. Religion is, is the, you know, it's this cultural experience of, of, of the spiritual aspect of our life, you know, and trying to understand God um, and understand what it is he's called us to and, and being part of a community of people. All of that's part of religion. And so religion at its best with its liturgies and the rituals that we often associate with it, with it it's at its best, it's there to make Christ more real to us, Right? See, never think just because we're an evangelical church, we're a non-denominational church, we're charismatic, we're free of all this stuff, that we don't have rituals, that we don't have a liturgy that we go through, right? What's the first thing we do when we come in here every Sunday morning? That's not a trick question. We sing, right? We worship, yeah. We sing, we worship, we praise. Uh, what do we usually, the second half of the service is? Preaching, Right. It's a rhythm. It's a routine. So we have these routines, right? And at some point in here, we pray for one another. We, we will pray for one another. Last week, we took communion, which is a 2,000-year-old 
uh, sacrament of the church. We took that together. After the service, we did water baptism. So we do these things that are, that are these physical representations of, of sublime spiritual truths. Uh, so that alone, it's not, it's not true to just say, well, religion is, is bad. But it should bring us closer to the reality of Christ. Sometimes when we pray for people, we anoint people with oil, right? It's not like a magic oil, but it is an act. It's a, it's a focus for our faith that represents a greater truth, right? The, the, the oil of healing that is, is coming over us. And so it should focus our faith, should focus our attention to the reality of Christ in a way that actually removes the loads and the burdens from us, trying to be righteous enough, right? Uh, trying to be holy enough and clever and spiritual enough. Even in prayer, I've told you before, in my prayer time, every day my prayer time was I'm praying, and I pray for you, and I pray for my family, and I'm praying for different things, and thanking God for what he's doing in our church. Uh, I, I started incorporating some ancient prayers that were written a thousand years before me by people much smarter than me, you know? And these things, these things uh, humble me because it means that I don't have to, uh, my prayers aren't answered only when I am clever and creative enough to come up with them myself, right? I don't have to come up with all the words, right? Someone else smarter than me who's you know, this prayer is time-tested, uh, I, I can pray that prayer too and come to, and but my faith is not in the prayer, my faith is in God, right? So there are ways we can do these things. Religious disciplines are great for you to wake up in the morning and say, every morning I'm going to pray. I'm going to set aside time to pray to the Lord. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, even, even before I, you know, have my breakfast taco, I'm going to go and spend time with the Lord, Spend some time, whatever many minutes that is, that is a good thing. That is a needed thing for you to say, whatever it is, morning, noon, lunch, night, I'm going to take time to read my Bible. I let God's word, his written word speak to me. That's a good thing. We need those things. So religious discipline is a good thing. It's a great thing. We need to have those things part of our life. If, though, your religious practices aren't freeing you, from the bond, bondage of endlessly striving and earning, and, and those things are laying more bondage on you, it's not the gospel, right? You hear me? It's not the gospel. It's not Christ. It's antichrist. Okay, check out what Paul says in Colossians. He says, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. So what Paul is saying that uh, God is showing us in the form of Christ exactly who he is. We get to see who God really is in Christ. These writers, now notice what he's about to say. These writers are not speaking of some distant future, something that may happen someday, hopefully, maybe someday, if you're good enough, if you're holy enough. The, look at the past tense in this next part. And in Christ, you have, as in already, you have already been brought to fullness. So something fundamental has changed in the core of your nature, right? This new reality of Christ. You have been brought into a new relationship with the God of the universe. Notice he keeps going. He says, he's the head over every power and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised. He's talking about a liturgy or ritual of their day with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole sinful nature here was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Now he's talking about a spiritual thing. 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Notice this, you are already, ra- you are already raised from the dead. You haven't even died yet, and you're already raised from the dead. Isn't that good news? You're already raised from the dead. And then he says in verse 13, when you were dead in your sins, that's your past tense, and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's that, that thing that they had to do back then, God made you alive with Christ. So notice what he's saying here. Before you ever did the ritual, God already did the miracle. Before you did it, he already did his part. He already did the miracle. The message of Christ is this announcement of what has already been done when you accept Christ as your Savior. The message is not about beating you up for what you haven't accomplished yet, right? All of these things. Religion at its best is not about beating you up for what you haven't accomplished yet. It's about what God has already done for you and for me in Christ. The gospel is not, the, is not this news that you're not doing enough to get on God's good side. It's the good news that you're already on his good side. You are on his good side because of what Christ did. Because of what he did, Christ's message is not the heavy weight of guilt and obligation. It is the good news that you have been liberated. We're free. You've been liberated. You've been liberated. Flip forward to chapter 3. The real question of all this comes down to how much do you trust God? How much do you trust him? Or do you trust in yourself? Do you feel like he didn't quite do enough? I better do some more to bridge that gap. Are you going to weigh yourself down with the stress and the burden of being responsible at every moment of your day for living up to some unattainable religious expectation or some unattainable expectation of other people in your life, family, friends, coworkers, whatever it is? Is that what you're loading yourself down with? Are you going to arrive at the time of death just hoping that you get into the good place because of your good karma, that it outweighs the bad karma? Is that, is, that, are, are, is that the burden you're carrying into your last breath? Or are you gonna trust in the God who has taken all of that weight on himself and the only thing he asks in return is for you to let him. Let him. The gospel is not heavy. But it can be hard. It can be hard. Colossians uh, chapter 3, he says this, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Let me ask you a question. If you are hidden in Christ and God looks at you, who does he see? Yeah. Yeah. Christ. See, these passages are not about you getting good enough. They're not about you getting spiritual enough in order to arrive at reconciliation with God. These first century Christians, our brothers and sisters, guys, they are screaming at us across the millennia to hear them. That you are already in Christ. You already are. You already are. You already are. This for me is a freeing truth. It is freeing. It is beautiful to have that weight off. But believe me when I tell you it is hard truth. It is hard to wrap my my brain around. That when God looks at me, he sees 
Christ. That makes me want to fall on my knees like Peter and say, I don't deserve to be in the boat with you. Oh, if you only knew. And he's like, I know, I'm God. (laughs) The, the, The gospel isn't the nine steps to getting closer to God, to getting to him. God reaches down and says, I'm ready to walk with you. I'm ready to walk with you right now. And God says, yeah, we're going to deal with your baggage. We are. We're going to deal with all your hurts and your addictions and all the ways that you fail every single day. It's all part of the healing package. You've joined the gold package, right? This is part of the package. But it all, God says, it all flows from my love for you. It's not the things you got to do to get my love. My love doesn't depend on you measuring up. Right? Somebody hear this today. It all, all of this flows from his love. And one of the hardest things I think for for human beings to do is to let go. It's to let go. It's why the message isn't heavy, but it's sometimes hard. Because let's face it, we are stubborn folk, right? (laughs) We enjoy control. We enjoy it. We get addicted. Sometimes we get addicted to our pain. And those of you who have been there know what I'm saying. We get addicted to the pain. We grow comfortable with the chains. It's not always pleasant to give up our anger, to give up our worry, our unforgiveness. You mean I got to give up my anger? I got to give up the grudge I've been walking around with? That's the thing that makes me feel righteous. It's that I got this grudge and I was right. I got to give that up? Sometimes letting go feels like a kind, and I'm not cursing when I say this, it feels like hell. It feels literally like a kind of hell. The promise of Christ, though, guys, is that when we do, when we let that go, that is the only hell we will ever experience. When we let that go, we will experience what comes after that is a lightness of being and, and freedom that the world cannot duplicate. It's not always easy to take that step. And sometimes that is a daily step. You know what I'm talking about? You take the step and then you you realize in the morning, I got to do that again. I'm back to being mad at them. (laughs) (laughs) You got to do it again. Yeah. Second Corinthians five. Um, Let's look at that. We're almost, we're almost done here. Religion at its most distorted, we talked about religion at its best, but religion at its most distorted, perverted is the message that if you can do enough, if you can get holy enough, if you can clean the cup and the plate and the dish on the inside and the outside with the right ritual and the right incantation, using the right movements, you may arrive at the point of super self-actualization, right? And you don't have to go to high church to succumb to this kind of religion, right? No, no, no. If you say all the prayers just right, if you maintain the super level of superhuman mental belief that never wavers even for a second, then you'll achieve, not God, you will achieve perfect enlightenment. And if all your wishes come true, Second Corinthians says this, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. 
nowhere in Scripture is there a formula for how to achieve all your desires. If, if you're just smart enough, if you're just strong enough, if you go to seminary long enough, if you're holy enough, if you keep all the laws. No, 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 no. All of the Scriptures we're told here, it, it, the New Testament teaches us is, is about this new creation that has already come if you're in Christ. If you've opened yourself to him and you've said, yes, made him your Lord, I surrender, I give up. You've made him your Lord. The old is gone, the new is here. The old is gone, the new is here. And he says this in uh, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Oh, oh, get ready. We're coming to the next step of all this. That is in Christ Jesus, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Notice the past tense of all this. This is wild stuff. Not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to who? Us. You're part of the us. I'm part of the us. Notice what he's entrusted to us. What is our mission? Is, it the miss- is, it, is our mission the message of condemnation? We need to make sure people know they need to feel condemned. Is that our mission? Or is our mission one of reconciliation? Jesus says the religious leaders with their burdens of of condemnation and rules, in order to achieve holiness, they've got it backwards, and it makes them furious. They've got it backwards. One more passage, and then we're going to be done here. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, if you're looking along yourself. All of this kind of begs the question, so so what? What what comes next? What is... What's the intended effect of all this wonderful message of the gospel, not just on us, but on the world around us? Um, because what we, what we gradually find is that if we're paying attention, the gospel is never, it begins with work done on the inside of us, but it never stops there. It, it doesn't condemn us, but it does provoke us to something, doesn't it? Right? There's a provoking element of all of this. It doesn't condemn us, but it may convict us. And also, I mean Christians. It may convict us. The message of Christ may challenge you to think through, what does it mean for me today to be a follower of Jesus and now take some action? What is the action I do with that? And it's not a wait. It's not a wait. It's the Spirit of God inviting you actually to new and greater levels of freedom. That's what you find. It's greater levels of freedom. That's God injecting your life with meaning and, and purpose and giving meaning. He gives meaning even to the blessings that he gives you. Isn't that cool? In the kingdom of God, so freedom is not just being allowed to uh, do whatever our most primal cravings are. That would be the world's definition of freedom. Yeah, I'm free. I could do whatever I want. In the kingdom of God, it's actually being free from your old nature of greed and grasping and craving and, you know, selfishness. And you're free now to be an instrument of God's love. So Ephesians chapter 2, here's our last passage. For it is by grace. The word grace is that Greek word charis. It means gift, gift. It's a gift. You have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. For we, look at that phrase, for we are God's handiwork. This is a beautiful phrase. It's the Greek word poema. Guess where we get from that? Poem. It is, it's the, where we get our word poem. Anybody ever say, boy, you're a piece of work. You can be like, yes, that is actually theologically sound doctrine. Thank you. I am. You were a poem created in Christ Jesus to do what? To, to sit around and enjoy your new status and bask in how great it all is to be in the club? No. You were a good work, a poem created to do good works. To do good works. That's a reference. In, in their time, it was a reference to the Jewish mitzvot, right? This, the, 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 to care for the orphan, to care for the widow, to those, the stranger among you, those less privileged, to be generous to those in need. We talked about this stuff last week. It's all the ways that we have the honor and the privilege of being God's hands and his feet in the world. The hands and feet of Christ, the body of Christ. We get to love others just like God's loved us. To take the gospel, the same gospel that set you free, and and we get to spread it like ambassadors to everybody that we see. And see, in the tradition of, of the Jewish writers, especially guys like Paul, The purpose of the mitzvot, these acts of good deeds, these good things you were supposed to do, they were better than just being nice or proving yourself righteous or something. The purpose was ultimately to heal and to repair. It was to bring shalom into the world, to heal and repair. That's what God called Israel to do, that they failed at. That's what God calls us to do, to heal and repair God's good world. So what is the grace of God? It's the gift that heals and repairs us. His grace comes and heals and repairs us. It's the gift of life, and it starts here and now. Uh, it's the gift of forgiveness. And, and you've been given new life. You've been forgiven. You're all set. Now go, he says. You're set. Now you go and extend that gift to others, those good works. And so, so Paul is putting flesh and blood on this gift of grace that we receive. So it's more than just some sort of esoteric philosophy or idea or just nice thoughts or feelings or something like that. He's putting flesh and blood on it. The, it's the growing awareness that what, what Christ has done for us should naturally lead us to action. It should. It, not out of burden, not out of guilt or obligation, but out of gratitude for his grace. That is what the natural reaction to grace is, is gratitude. It's, it's all gift. And see, if at any point in that, so let's say you're doing that, you're out there, you're giving, you're, you're doing for people, you're, you're supplying folks' needs, and you're ministering to people, and you're comforting people, and if at any point in all of that, it starts to get fuzzy again, and you start to slide back into the religion of, of guilt, and obligation, and achievement, and self-righteousness, and look how holy I am, look at all the things I did this week. If you start to slide that back into that, then you need to allow the Holy Spirit to gently bring us back to the awareness of the gift of it all, that it's all gift, it's all gift, and that's the way we flow as Christians. It's a flow. It's really not a pendulum you're supposed to just like bounce off back and forth. It's a flow, this endless flow of the life of a disciple between our gratitude for what's already been done for us, and then that, that continual loving urge of the Holy Spirit that we all need sometimes 
who says, now you've been given resources, you've been given energy and wealth and experience and talent and passion. God, these things that God has prepared in advance, these works for you to do, right? And it's, that's what it means to just flow in that river of grace. That's God's gift to us. Today, whatever, whatever heavy burdens you're carrying, whatever you walk through these doors with today, whether it's the past uh, bondage of bad religion, maybe you've got, you've got something you're like, this is hard because religion has done to me. It's, it's, it's not done me right. I have a bad taste in my mouth when you talk about religion, Scott. I understand that. I understand. If that's where you come from. Or if the heavy burdens you're carrying are just the cares and worries and heavy responsibilities of life, things that are happening right now around you. God says the same thing. He says, cast them on me. Cast them on me. Step away from the burden. Take my yoke upon you. And wherever you are, uh, do you know where God invites you to? Do you know where he wants you to, to do next? He just wants you to do the next right step. He just wants you to do the next right step. The next step in your walk with him. Sometimes that's a baby step, right? That's okay. Sometimes it's a big old leap of faith. We come to those steps too. But it's all with God by our side. It's all God by your side. He's never telling you to do it by yourself. This is the God who decided long, long ago to love you and to adopt you into his family to help you grow strong and deep. That's what he wants for you. And God isn't asking you to solve all the problems of the world. You don't have to help everybody, right? That would be a burden. He's not asking you to solve all the problems of the world. And he also doesn't ask you to cure all of your issues. That would be an impossible burden to lay on your shoulders. He's not asking you to do those things. What he's asking you to do is to take the next right step. Will you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? Father, hallelujah, hallelujah. Father God, Lord, I pray, first of all, I pray, Lord, for those who've come today just feeling beat up, feeling not good enough, folks who are feeling like failures, folks who are feeling like their, their, their mistakes are just going to follow them around. Open our eyes, Lord God, to the freeing, life-giving, burden-lifting message of your kingdom, Lord. And Lord God, together, we reject, as a community, we reject any kind of religiosity that just piles on destructive guilt and, and perverted shame. We don't want any part of that message. We want to embody, Lord God, the, the pure, the clean, life-giving gospel. And God, for those who are here today, Lord, who are just overwhelmed with self-defeating lies, that they're not, they're not good enough, they're not fast enough, thin enough, pretty enough, wealthy enough, smart enough, successful enough, whatever it is, please rescue us, Lord God, from, from every worldly value system that would rob, of us, rob us of our, of our freedom and our joy. We ask you even now, Lord God, to just take the, the heavy, those cumbersome loads off of our shoulders. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And God, 
as we move from just awareness, we've heard the message. May we move from awareness to action, Lord God. For those of us who have maybe been sitting mostly on the sidelines, and it's time for risk. It's time for challenge. It's time to leap. Rescue us, Lord God, from our addiction to safety and comfort and security. We thank you that your kingdom, Lord God, is the kingdom of desire. May we crave it like treasure buried in a field, like the most beautiful pearl that ever existed. Because your kingdom is a treasure. It's a jewel. It's something that we want more than anything. And Lord God, we know that kingdom is moving. You are moving. You are advancing. The kingdom is leaping forward, Father God, into this world, and we want in. We want to be a part of it, Lord. Thank you for the honor of getting to be a part of it. In the strong healing name of Jesus, we pray. Everybody said, amen, amen. Uh, prayer partners, if you would like, you can come on down now. If, if you're here today and there's anything that we can pray for you about, please let us pray for you. Don't leave without us praying for you. We don't believe anybody should suffer in silence. We don't believe anybody should go through things alone. If you're doing it by yourself, if you're doing it alone, you're doing it the hard way. And uh, we believe we help bear one another's burdens. That's what scripture also tells us to. And so come and let us pray for you today. You can also send us your prayer request online or using your, your phone or you can text it or email or however you want to do. But we've got a whole prayer chain of people who want to pray for you and stand in prayer with you as you're going through whatever it is you're going through. We believe in miracles. We're a church that believes in miracles. We believe that God is moving, that his Holy Spirit is moving, that Jesus uh, is still effective and that prayer is effective. And so let us pray with you. Will you stand to your, fate with me, to, your, to your feet with me this morning as I bless you? Hallelujah. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance and just pour out his favor on you this week. May every door you need opened open wide. May you have no confusion over what the next right step is as you listen to the Holy Spirit guiding you gently by the hand to that step, and then the one after that, and then the one after that, and the one after that, into a life of more freedom than you can ever imagine. Amen. Grace and peace be with you. Bye-bye.